0: You are listening to the Alpha Male Buddhist from Brooklyn Podcast. Expand your mind and keep it love.
1: This is episode 123 and I'm your host, Miguel. The podcast today is going to cover probably the most influential philosopher in Western civilization, I guess besides, you know, Socrates and Plato and Aristotle, and that would be Frederick Nietzsche, or some pronounce it Frederick Nietzsche, or just simply Nietzsche. He is extremely controversial, very esoteric, known known by very few. Most people, if you say to them, "Hey, you know, what do you think about Nietzsche or his his uh, his writings?" He wrote many many books, and one of the most famous is one called "Thus Spoke Zarathustra." Most people don't really know about Nietzsche, but he's, like I said, he's extremely controversial because of the density of his writing and just his mind, the way his mind operates. It's kind of, it's a, it's a wonder of, of just intellect and just power the way he thinks and his outlook on life. I, I can't even put it into words, but recently I started getting into him. You know, I'm getting into the, into the uh, philosophy. I saw a clip on him. And what it was was about um, the metam- metamorphosis of of man, the ascension of man, and what it states basically in this metaphor- metamorphosis is there's a three states of a man becoming what they called what he calls the Uberman or the Superman, and the first phase is when man is a spirit, basically when he's a sheep and he's part of the herd. His whole goal in life is just to be accepted by his herd or by his tribe and not to be rejected. And that's spirit. And everybody falls into that category. Now, as man begins his ascent, which most, as he outlines, most people don't do it out of fear. And just, you know, he's really like, he he had that quote, whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger. God is dead. And that God is dead quote, I, I feel is really misinterpreted on listening and reading about him. Because what he's doing right there is he's removing all crutches and weaknesses and excuses and putting the onus on a man to evolve and move forward on, on, on the man himself. One. Two and to some to a large degree I, I agree with him in that's in the sense not that God is dead, but that religion as a control mechanism, you know, when you get into and if you're Catholic or Protestant, whatever, I have no knock on you, and it's great that you follow truth and, and a path and teachings of Jesus, that's great. But it's it, it's really more than just looking at it from from a standpoint of simplicity. Religion as a control mechanism. You know, for thousands of years, you know, for 2,000 years, what the Catholic Church has done and what's going on with a lot of these major religions where they just hound old ladies, you know, to send them their last $20, you know, these televangelists, so... If you really want to get your teachings, you know, I, there's really nothing, and it's great if you want to go to church, but pick up the Bible and, and and read it yourself and and study yourself. So I digress, as I always do. The thing with Nietzsche that that was his whole statement that God is dead, and again, a lot of other controversial statements that he makes. I mean, they'll he's just known for these quotes that just kind of kind of catch you like a left hook you weren't expecting. I mean, just it'll just floor you, like a lot of things that he says. Again, I agree with a great deal of what what he says, and the other the other part of it, I probably just can't figure out yet. The guy is just so dense, and so I, I mean, he's just a maverick, man. This guy is just a genius, a real genius. So, back to the uh, the three states of men. The first state of the man is going to be the spirit, where he's part of the herd. Uh, he falls under that con- control mechanism. The second state, when a man chooses the path of ascension, which is contingent really upon himself doing it, the second phase, he goes from spirit, he goes to the camel. And the reason Nietzsche is using the camel is because a camel can carry a heavy load and can go without food and water and can pr- persevere in, 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 in harshness and really, really conditions that nobody else can persevere, but a camel can. And that is the state where a man is beginning to learn and to study, and one of the big things with Nietzsche is that the only growth that you're going to get is as a result of suffering, and he viewed suffering almost in a way of being the beauty of life, which is really profound, because when you know you can't just take take the uh, the good and then discard the bad and say, well, you know, I don't like that because you know I just want to. I just want to eat the, ch- the crunchy part of the chicken wing, you know, and forget the rest of the chicken. No, I, I, you know, you you have to love it for its entirety for what it is, you know. I've heard it said before that you can't just love you know, if you have, let's say your spouse, you can't just love your spouse, but you have to love the crust of your spouse. You know, the, all the parts. It's very true. So, Nietzsche feels that you have to enjoy life It's in totality and that the, the, the growth and we all know this the growth in, in in life and doing better is in in the suffering you know and you have to accept that so that's that's the uh, metaphor of the camel as you go about going through your adversity and your hard time and study and getting things wrong and stumbling and getting back up again and but each time you get up you you you're moving closer to your goal your target of being that uberman or that Superman yeah, the camel is, is the second phase of the metamorphosis. And then the third phase of it is when you're the lion. And that's when you're fearless and it, it, something to the effect of you're able to say no, you know, just not blindly accept things, which is in essence becoming the Uberman or the Superman. And and once you attain that state of, of of that Superman or that Uberman, it's not a thing where you just um, you're there and that's it, and you know you wear this crown and you run around like you're Superman. No, it's a, he he indicates that it's like a fleeting moment that you have this epiphany where you reach this point and then you dash back down again, not low to, to back to the spirit or to just part of the herd, but where you just recognize that you're not. At that pinnacle, and that you and you have these moments where you come and go in and out of that phase, you know. It's some really deep, profound stuff, you know. So I'm gonna play a couple of clips, and uh one is kind of from a simple level, and it gets into the three phases, and then the other two clips are um a li- little bit more deeper that you have to listen. And they're speaking on thus spoke Zarathustra. <laughs> it's hard to pronounce, but he has so many books out there. Some people, I mean, if you're going to listen to this episode and you're saying, what is this guy talking about? It's probably not really intended for you. And this is like that heavy duty black belt type of podcast where a lot of people are not going to get it. And it's not that you're stupid or anything like that, but it's. Some real esoteric topics that you kind of have to lead up to it. Some of you might listen to it and get it right out of the box, or I feel most of you, if you really dedicate and listen to this, you're gonna get something out of it. It's gonna trigger some things in your, or illuminate. I don't hate the word trigger. It's gonna illuminate some things in your, in your cerebral cortex and your thinking process, and it's gonna have you scratch your head and say, "What did he just say?" And then you're gonna start YouTube and Friedrich Nietzsche and getting into him. Um, this this guy just Again, it's hard, really hard to put into words, and I'm wrap, trying to wrap my head around the essence of what he's talking about. But he just goes off into so many different directions, and so many illustrating so many different essences of what we are. And if I'm not mistaken, Sigmund Freud, Sigmund Freud and Carl Jung were heavily influenced by by Nietzsche. So, and uh, Jordan Peterson talks a lot about him. He, I saw one thing that he uh, he did, Jordan Peterson did 45 minutes on one paragraph of Nietzsche. And uh, it's all legit stuff, man. But yeah, he gets into the Uberman, the the Superman, and how it's not, the way he gets into it, it's not so much of you being happy or you being sad or you fulfilling whatever, it's, it's life as it is. And he made a statement where if a person lived a life along with, the successes and the failures and everything like that and it was time for him to come back around and live again you know the only other way to do it would would be to come back and live it exactly the same way because that is that is the essence of what real life is there's no pre-planning or scripting of anything it's 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 to be lived and and to digress back to the book uh thus spoke zarasustra it's about a guy who ascended to the top of a 6,000 foot mountain and he stayed there for 10 years and basically just reflected on life and meditated on his own in solitude. That's another big thing with Nietzsche. He's into the solitude, which I'm I'm pretty much into that myself too. I mean, it, I, I I have the most fun, honestly, when I'm by myself and I'm able to reflect and think I'm not antisocial, but I really enjoy my, my time alone and my solitude. You know that that uh, lends itself a lot to why I like podcasting and such because I am able to reflect deeply within myself. But I know that the things that are within myself is shared with uh, other people are going through the exact same thing, and that's what we all have in common. But I don't necessarily have to be in a crowd of five thousand people, you know, to feel some kind of uh, company or some type of simpatico. You know, I I kind of enjoy my my solitude. So this this guy went up to a six thousand foot mountain. In solitude, he was there for 10 years and he would greet the sun and talk to the sun and, you know, all of these different metaphorical things. And after 10 years, the, the, the clip I play is going to get into it. He 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 descended down from the mountain because he could no longer hold it within him and he wanted to share his knowledge and his understanding uh, with, with the masses, with everyone. And the first group of people that he came to, to speak to, they basically laughed at him because they had no comprehension of where he was coming from. So he, at that point he decided that he's only going to speak to and this is Zarathustra speaking the guy from the book he decided that he's only going to speak to people that could comprehend what he's what he's talking about so i have a lot more research to do into into this uh the teachings or the writings of frederick nietzsche i mean many many famous people were really heavily influenced by him and you'll hear his name dropped uh, all the time in in real intellectual circles so the way i see it is there's certain people that you really have to enter into your paradigm of, of learning into your wheelhouse of study and he is absolutely one of them and as i said i mean all no no pun intended i mean this i put this guy up there with socrates aristotle and plato but just in a more modern time. I, I believe he was born in like 1844. And he went mad at, at the age of 44, if I'm not mistaken. I think he had syphilis or something like that. And he just lost his mind. Uh, and th- this was common for a lot of people of that era. Yeah, I would like to to get more into into Nietzsche. But I mean, I, I don't want to speak on him half, half understanding or whatever like that. I'll probably do an episode later down the road where where I have more comprehension of his teachings. I mean the dude is just profound, really profound. So, I'm going to play three clips. Uh, I'm going to put the links of these clips in in my website which is alpha male buddhist.podbean.com. I would like for you to check out my Instagram which is also alpha male buddhist and that's on Instagram. I'm starting to do some real little clips on there and getting more engaged in, in Instagram because it's it's driving more traffic to my to my show to my podcast and I'm seeing some success doing that. Um let's see what else what else? Yeah check out my webpage. If you have any comments, any feedback, you know reach out to me. My email address is alpha male buddhist at gmail.com. So I'd like to get some feedback on that. And I guess I'm gonna play the clips. I'm gonna put the hang in here and uh i'll put my outro at the end and thank you for listening and namaste
2: many of us humans struggle with an overwhelming feeling of disillusionment with one's life and society at large we feel as though we are nothing but puppets being strung along at the will of the system or some higher entity in which we are ignorant to we feel as though we have no control over our lives and that in the words of freddie mercury nothing really matters If you are currently dealing with this internal dilemma, chances are that you are in desperate need for self-transformation, and in Friedrich Nietzsche's book titled Thus Spoke Zarathustra*, he provides a framework for achieving just that. In the book he introduces a concept called the Übermensch, which is German for overman or superman. An Übermensch is one who has transcended the bondage of the human condition and has achieved a liberated state, one of free play and creativity. The state is characterized by reaching a point of pure individual, uninfluenced and unbothered by the ways of society, leaving one free to dance to the tune of their own life. Sounds pretty great, doesn't it? Well, before you can reach that point, Nietzsche outlines three spiritual metamorphoses that you must overcome in order to transform into your own personal version of an ubermensch. But before we get into that, don't forget to like and subscribe to help my channel grow. I definitely need the help. Okay, with that being said, let's continue. The first metaphorical character mentioned in the book is the spirit. The spirit is rather invisible and unremarkable. It represents humans who live life passively, never take risks, and fear discomfort. The spirit is reminiscent of a sheep and is sadly resigned to never achieving much beyond the status quo and survival. The spirit must reject this existence and confront the challenges of the world if the goal is to transform, which leads to the first metamorphosis, the camel. what is difficult, asks the spirit that would bear much, and kneels down like a camel wanting to be well-loaded. What is most difficult, O heroes, that I may take it upon myself and exalt in my strength." Quote. In this part of the book, the spirit transforms into a camel, which makes sense symbolically because camels are capable of carrying lots of weight and surviving long journeys through the desert. Nietzsche proceeds to list many of life's most difficult trials and experiences and indicates that the camel must invite these burdens. What Nietzsche is saying is that in order to become an ubermensch you must confront reality and all of the pain that comes along with it. You must confront death, suffering, confusion, thirst for knowledge, boredom, hard work and all other dilemmas that manifest in the human experience. The camel does not run from life or distract himself from it. Instead, the camel embraces it out of a sense of duty, it purges its soul with the fires of existence so that it may emerge with increased strength and resilience. But the issue with becoming a camel is that you eventually enter what is called the loneliest desert, which is essentially an existential crisis. The camel is forced to confront the fact that there may be no universal truth or absolute purpose in life. It's at this point that it has two options, commit suicide, or move on to the next metamorphosis, which is that of the lion. The spirit must transform into a lion because in order to leave the loneliest desert, it must confront the great dragon. Quote, here the spirit becomes a lion who would conquer his freedom and be master in his own desert. Here he seeks out his last master. He wants to fight him in his last god. For ultimate victory, he wants to fight with the great dragon. Who is the great dragon whom the spirit will no longer call lord and god? Thou shalt is the name of the great dragon. End quote. The spirit is a slave to the great dragon because it represents everything imposed upon oneself from external entities such as society, government, churches, family, the education system, propaganda, etc., hence why the dragon's name is Thou Shalt, a command. The challenges that the spirit faced as a camel has allowed it to transform into a lion which represents courage, rebellion, tenacity, and rage. It is in this form that the spirit is able to deliver the sacred note, which is symbolic for the blatant rejection of all external pressure and traditional values. The statement kills the dragon, in which he has been a slave to, thus leaving the spirit responsible for creating his own values and direction in life, solely based on his individuality. It's not that the lion considers all external entities to be evil and corrupt, the issue is that they infringe on the spirit's ability to be a true individual, and an ubermensch is the absolute individual. Pursuing and achieving goals which are predicated based on what you want out of life is behavior that characterizes the spiritual state of the lion. Once the spirit has achieved freedom from the influences of the world by becoming a lion, he now has to forget his past and move on to a new beginning. He must now transform into a child. But say, my brothers, what can the child do that even the lion cannot do? Why must the praying lion still become a child? The child is innocence and forgetting. A new beginning. A game. A self-propelled wheel. A first movement. A sacred yes. For the game of creation, my brothers, a sacred yes is needed. The spirit now wills his own will, and he who has been lost to the world now conquers his own world." End quote. The spirit has dealt with much pain and stress during the course of its transformations, but now it must cleanse its mind of the past and move forward into a new era. It must deliver the sacred yes, and therefore live in the moment, accept uncertainty, and flow gracefully in the flux of life. In the state of the child, life is no longer a constant battle against external forces or a struggle to solidify one's identity. Instead, he lives life in a perpetual state of play and joyful creation. In Nietzsche's opinion, this is the only state in which one can create their own reality. By overcoming this vital metamorphosis, the spirit overcomes itself, achieves liberation, conquers its world, and thus becomes what Nietzsche calls an ubermensch. The way I see it, this is not a straight path, but instead a cycle. We all start off as children, but when we grow up, some of us might notice that we must symbolically become a camel in order to sustain our imposed identity within society. It's at this point that we may enter into a period of great stress and crisis. And to overcome this, you must become aligned by rejecting subsequent external forces and begin to create your own pathway in life. You must cease to worry about such dilemmas and revert to a state of play and creation, and therefore become a child again. It's only in this state of liberation that you are able to become the ultimate and best version of yourself, a literal superman or superwoman. But my friends, that's it for this week's video. As always, I hope you enjoyed it and added the knowledge to your own philosophical lexicon. Stay tuned and I'll catch you on the next one. Oh yeah, and don't forget to subscribe. In this lecture we will provide an introduction to some of
0: Friedrich Nietzsche's main philosophical ideas. We will investigate his views on morality, nihilism, suffering, truth, the overman, amor fadi, and the eternal recurrence. Before we proceed we must note that perhaps more than any other philosopher, Nietzsche's ideas are open to multiple interpretations. In this video we will provide one such interpretation. For Nietzsche, philosophy was not, as he put it, a critique of words by means of other words. Instead, for Nietzsche, philosophy had a definite practical purpose, that being to facilitate the emergence of the great individual who dedicates their life to growth and self-overcoming. Nietzsche believed that such a pursuit would provide one with the ability to completely affirm life in the face of suffering, pain and tragedy. There are heights of the soul from which even tragedy ceases to look tragic, wrote Nietzsche, in Beyond Good and Evil. The great individual attains these heights. Nietzsche viewed himself as the educator of such a great individual, whom he called the higher man. For this reason he saw himself as writing not for the masses, but for the potential higher man alone. These alone are my readers, my rightful readers, my predestined readers. What do the rest matter? The rest are merely mankind. The higher man, Nietzsche maintained, is separated from the rest of mankind by the constitution of his internal being. Within the higher man exists an array of powerful and potent drives, engaged in a continual battle with each other. The higher man, in other words, is a chaotic being, who is at constant war with himself, and therefore one who suffers deeply, and is always in danger of self-destructing. In order to attain greatness in the ability to affirm life, Nietzsche believed that the higher man must impose order on his internal chaos. This is his life's mission. To become master of the chaos one is, that is the grand ambition here. Because he suffers so deeply from the chaos that he is, there exists the possibility that the higher man will evade his life's mission and instead seek out the comforts of mediocrity via conformity. Nietzsche postulated that within every individual exists a herd instinct, that is, an innate need to obey and conform to the masses. Individuals satiate this need by obeying the accepted morality, that is, the designation of what is good and what is evil, of one's culture. Morality is the best of all devices for leading mankind by the nose, proclaimed Nietzsche in the Antichrist. Such a morality, since it is accepted by the masses, Nietzsche called herd morality. Nietzsche maintained that herd morality serves a clear purpose. It instills in mediocre individuals the conviction that their weakness is not a fault, but instead a strength. Verily, I have often laughed at the weaklings who thought themselves good because they had no claws, Nietzsche wrote and thus spoke Zarathustra. On the other hand, herd morality maintains that those qualities which the herd lack are evil. As Nietzsche put it, high and independent spirituality, the will to stand alone, even a powerful reason are experienced as dangers everything that elevates an individual above the herd and intimidates the neighbor is henceforth called evil therefore with herd morality as nietzsche amusingly quipped the sheep gains in respect since sheep like qualities are championed by herd morality as being good herd morality pressures individuals into becoming good that is weak and obedient the higher man If he is to achieve greatness, must escape the clutches of herd morality and renounce it in favor of his own self-created and life-affirming morality. Can you give yourself your own evil and your own good and hang your own will over yourself as a law? In order to escape from the herd and live according to his own life-affirming morality, Nietzsche thought it was essential for the higher man to separate himself physically from the herd and live a life of solitude. Nietzsche believed that out of fear and laziness, the masses structure their lives so as to blind themselves to the deep questions of human existence. For the objective of all human arrangements is through distracting one's thoughts to cease to be aware of life. The higher man, if he is to achieve greatness in life, must contemplate questions which the herd is too weak and scared to ponder. And to do this, he needs his solitude. For now he will have to descend into the depths of existence with a string of curious questions on his lips. Why do I live? What lesson have I learned from life? How do I become what I am and why do I suffer from being what I am? According to Nietzsche, the deepest questions one can ask in life are why do I live and why do I suffer? In fact, Nietzsche believed that these two questions are really one and the same. Man needs to believe life has a meaning or purpose because of the fact that he suffers so deeply, and thus wants to be assured that he suffers for a reason. Man, the bravest of animals, and the one most accustomed to suffering, does not repudiate suffering as such. He desires it, he even seeks it out, provided he has shown a meaning for it, a purpose of suffering. The meaninglessness of suffering, not suffering itself, was the curse that lay over mankind so far. With his proclamation, God is dead, Nietzsche prophesied the coming of an age when the interpretations of life's purpose, which had been dominant up to that point, most prominently the belief in a God, would be unveiled for what they are, mere myths or stories. Without the conviction that life has a purpose or goal, Nietzsche understood that many individuals would fall into despair under the suspicion that we are nothing but meaningless animals in a meaningless universe. Nietzsche discerned that this dark suspicion would usher in a state of nihilism, which is the belief that everything lacks meaning. Without a goal or purpose to impose meaning on one's suffering, one is left with the despair-ridden conviction that one suffers for no reason at all. Nihilism appears at that point, not that the displeasure of existence has become greater than before, but because one has come to mistrust any meaning in suffering, indeed in existence. It now seems as if there is no meaning at all in existence, as if everything were in vain. Although Nietzsche himself struggled with nihilism throughout his life, he didn't believe life was devoid of meaning. Instead, he came to realize that nihilism is a consequence of the misguided attempt to acquire objective knowledge, or in other words, the desire for there to be an objective meaning to life that an individual can come to know. Nietzsche believed that not only was there no objective meaning to life, but he claimed that truth does not exist, and therefore objective knowledge about anything, including the meaning of life, is an impossibility. Instead, according to Nietzsche, an individual is always confined to know the world through one's own personal interpretation of it. The task of painting the picture of life, however often poets and philosophers may pose it, is nonetheless senseless. Even under the hands of the greatest painter-thinkers, all that has ever eventuated is pictures and miniatures out of one life, namely their own, and nothing else is even possible. Since one cannot escape from one's own personal interpretation or perspective of life, Nietzsche understood that one should give up trying to search for the truth, as there is no truth, and instead paint a picture, or in other words, interpret existence in a way that is life-promoting. For in doing so, one will be able to escape nihilism by creating meaning in one's own life. Since Nietzsche realized that the deepest question which confronts man is why do I suffer, he understood the desperate need to first and foremost interpret suffering in a manner which would be life-promoting. Through his analysis of his own suffering, Nietzsche came to understand that pain is not considered an objection to life. Instead, Nietzsche believed that a life without suffering and pain would be a miserable life, for he believed suffering to be a precondition of greatness. You want, if possible, and there is no more insane, if possible, to abolish suffering, and we, It really seems that we would rather have it higher and worse than ever. The discipline of suffering, of great suffering. Do you not know that only this discipline has created all enhancements of man so far? With the knowledge that with great suffering comes great advancement, Nietzsche understood that the higher man would be in need of an ideal or a vision of perfection to keep him motivated in his quest for greatness even in his darkest hours. Nietzsche invented the overman as such an ideal. I teach you the overman, man is something that shall be overcome. What have you done to overcome him?" The overman as an ideal is a perfect and powerful being, one who has overcome all his inner fears, weaknesses and deficiencies, and thus one who soars above the rest of mankind. Since ideals can be approached but never realized on this earth, Nietzsche maintained that never yet has there been an overman. The best one can hope for is to attain the perfection and power of the overman in rapturous moments. Yet, it is impossible to maintain this perfection, and after these ecstatic moments, one must always revert back to being human, all too human. In his state as human, all too human, Nietzsche understood that the higher man would become aware of his deficiencies and weaknesses, and would subsequently feel ashamed at the vast gulf which separates him from the perfection of the overman. Craving the unattainable perfection of the overman, the higher man would begin to hate his imperfect self. This self-hate, Nietzsche paradoxically held, would be the beginning of the higher man's great love for himself. For the higher man would soon come to realize that without his inner deficiencies and his hatred of them, he would have no motivation to grow and overcome himself, and thus would remain forever stagnant. I love the great despisers because they are the great reverers and arrows of longing for the other shore. In the section titled On the Vision and the Riddle, in Nietzsche's masterpiece Thus Spoke Zarathustra, Nietzsche tells a parable, which is a story with an inherent spiritual lesson, which conveys how the higher man's deficiencies are necessary for growth and the movement towards greatness. Nietzsche begins the parable by conveying a striking image. A young shepherd I saw, writhing, gagging, in spasms, his face distorted, and a heavy black snake hung out of his mouth. Had I ever seen so much nausea and pale dread on one face? My hand tore at the snake and tore in vain. It did not tear the snake out of his throat. Then it cried out of me, bite, bite its head off, bite. The shepherd however bit as my cry counselled him, he bit with a good bite. Far away he spewed the head of the snake, and he jumped up. No longer shepherd, no longer human, one changed, radiant laughing. Never yet on earth has a human being laughed as he laughed. Oh my brothers, I heard a laughter that was no human laughter. In this parable, the shepherd represents the higher man, and the black snake the higher man's great despair and fears which slither in his being. With the snake in his throat, the shepherd is the higher man in one of his darkest moments. But as he bites off the snake's head, he overcomes his great despair and dark demons, and emerges for a rapturous moment as the overman himself. And he laughs a laugh which signifies his power, perfection, and his complete affirmation of life. Nietzsche thought that the complete affirmation of life was the highest state a human being could attain. He put forth two intertwined concepts to represent the affirmation of life, amor fati or love of fate, and the eternal recurrence. Amor fati or love of fate, is the culmination of the higher man's greatness. My formula for greatness in a human being is amor fati," wrote Nietzsche. To love fate means to completely affirm life, and is thus the most difficult task there is. The difficulty lies in the fact that existence contains so much evil, pain, suffering, and tragedy. How can one completely affirm life in the presence of so much ugliness? As we have seen, Nietzsche believed that one must experience great amounts of suffering and pain if one is to achieve greatness, or as he put it, it is out of the deepest depth that the highest must come to its height. With this knowledge, he believed the higher man would understand that evil, pain, suffering, and tragedy are not ugly, but actually have an inherent beauty to them for latent within these aspects of existence is the potential for growth and self-overcoming. Only if the black snake is crawling down one's throat can one bite off its head and laugh a laugh that is no human laughter, but the laughter of the overman. I want to learn more and more to see as beautiful what is necessary in things. Then I shall be one of those who make things beautiful. Amor fari. let that be my love henceforth. I do not want to wage war against what is ugly. And all in all, and on the whole, someday I wish to be only a yes-sayer. In order to determine whether one is in a state of yes-saying, meaning a state of complete life affirmation, Nietzsche constructed the eternal recurrence as a psychological test. In the gay science Nietzsche put forth the content of such a test. What if some day or night a demon were to steal after you, into your loneliest loneliness, and say to you, This life as you now live it and have lived it, You will have to live once more and innumerable times more, and there will be nothing new in it. But every pain and every joy and every thought and sigh, and everything unutterably small and great in your life will have to return to you, all in the same succession and sequence. Would you throw yourself down and gnash your teeth, and curse the demon who spoke thus? Or have you once experienced a tremendous moment when you would have answered him? You are a god and never have I heard anything more divine. The higher man in affirming life realizes that his tremendous moments were born from his darkest experiences and therefore apprehends the inherent beauty in suffering, tragedy, and evil. With this understanding, he does not condemn life as a pessimist despite the profuse suffering he has endured, but instead celebrates tragedy as a joyous yes-sayer. As he nears his death, the higher man wishes not for the peace of non-existence, but instead wishes the eternal recurrence were true so that he could repeat the struggle of life over and over for eternity. In Thus Spoke Zarathustra Nietzsche conveyed this by saying, Was that life I want to say to death? Well then, once more. In Thus Spoke Zarathustra, the main character leaves his home at the age of 30, and retreats into the mountains hoping to find enlightenment. There, 6,000 feet beyond man and time, Zarathustra remains for ten years, and in his solitude his spirit grows, and he pierces into the enigma of man and existence. One morning, tired of his solitude and overflowing with wisdom, he rises at dawn and speaks to the sun. Great star, what would your happiness be, if you had not those for whom you shine? You have come up here to my cave for ten years. You would have grown weary of your light and of this journey, without me, my eagle and my serpent. Behold, I am weary of my wisdom. Like a bee that has gathered too much honey, I need hands outstretched to take it. Zarathustra decides that it is time to detach himself from his heightened consciousness, and like the setting sun, descend from his mountain to empty his wisdom into the world of ordinary men. I must descend into the depths, as you do at evening, when you go behind the sea, and bring light to the underworld too, superabundant star. Like you, I must go down. Behold, this cup wants to be empty again, and Zarathustra wants to be man again. During Zarathustra's descent, he encounters a solitary old man who asks Zarathustra what business he has with mankind. Zarathustra replies that he loves mankind, and is bringing them the gift of his overflowing wisdom. The old man warns Zarathustra that mankind will not take kindly to his offering, but will respond with ridicule and hatred but Zarathustra brushes aside the old man's warning, and continues on his mission. He soon comes upon a town where a crowd is gathered, awaiting the performance of a tightrope walker. Seizing upon the opportunity to spread his wisdom, he begins by teaching the crowd his cosmic principle of creative evolution. I teach you the Superman. Man is something that should be overcome. What have you done to overcome him? All creatures hitherto have created something beyond themselves. And do you want to be the ebb of this great tide, and return to the animals, rather than overcome man? Zarathustra's cosmic principle of creative evolution, in contrast to Darwinian evolution, proposes that evolution is not guided by accidental mutations and adaptations, but by a teleological force, which regulates the development of life from a lower spiritual state to a higher. This force is directly felt by human beings as aspiration and by embracing this aspiration, according to Zarathustra, the individual can overcome himself and evolve. The teachings of the Christian Church repressed this aspiration by spreading the idea that to seek autonomy and act in the service of one's self-interest is a sin, while to sacrifice oneself and admit dependence upon God the highest good. As such, impulses such as sexual lust, pride, and the desire for power were branded as evil elements to be tamed and eradicated. The individual was taught by the Christian church not to overcome himself, but to deny himself, and to weaken his body for the sake of his soul. The church fights passion with excision in every sense, Nietzsche wrote in Twilight of the Idols. Its practice, its cure, is castratism. It never asks, how can one spiritualize, beautify, deify a craving? It has at all times laid the stress of discipline on extirpation, of sensuality, of pride, of the lust to rule, of avarice, of vengefulness. But an attack on the roots of passion means an attack on the roots of life. The practice of the church is hostile to life. Zarathustra urges the crowd to discard with the teachings of the church and instead create a new meaning of the earth, one that embraces the individual's desire to actualize and assert himself and promotes the development of a strong body in which the natural instincts are seen as sources of energy to be channeled and sublimated for the sake of self-overcoming. This new meaning, Zarathustra announces to be the Superman. Once you said God when you gazed upon distant seas, but now I have taught you to say Superman. Upon finishing his speech, those in the crowd, believing Zarathustra to be the tightrope walker they were awaiting, laugh and call out, Now we have heard enough of the tightrope walker, let us see him too. The tightrope walker, assuming these calls from the crowd to be his cue, emerges from his tower and begins his performance. Unfazed by their apparent confusion, Zarathustra continues his speech and uses the tightrope walker's appearance as a metaphor for man's relationship to the superman. Man is a rope, Zarathustra cries out to the crowd, fastened between animal and superman, a rope over an abyss. The tightrope walker's performance is dangerous, as he must traverse a rope suspended over a deep chasm. So too, in bringing about the superman, man must live dangerously. He must assume great risks and never remain stagnant, but despite the dangers, always live for the sake of self-transformation. As Zarathustra explains, those who live in this manner are the individuals destined to be the harbingers of the superman. I love all those who are like heavy drops falling singly from the dark cloud that hangs over mankind. They prophesy the coming of the lightning, and as prophets they perish. Behold, I am a prophet of the lightning and a heavy drop from the cloud, but this lightning is called Superman. When Zarathustra finishes his speech, the crowd erupts in laughter once more. Believing the fault to lie in his approach, he tries a different tactic by warning them that Western culture is in decline. Crippled by a disability of values. He informs them that this decline is breeding the most contemptible man, the last man, the counter ideal of the Superman. It is time for man to fix his goal. It is time for man to plant the seed of his highest hope. His soil is still rich enough for it, but this soil will one day be poor and weak. No longer will a high tree be able to grow from it. I tell you, One must have chaos in one to give birth to a dancing star. I tell you, you still have chaos in you. Alas, the time is coming when man will give birth to no more stars. Behold, I shall show you the last man. The last man is the individual who specializes not in creation, but in consumption. In the midst of satiating base pleasures, he claims to have discovered happiness by virtue of the fact that he lives in the most technologically advanced and materially luxurious era in human history. But this self-infatuation of the Last Man conceals an underlying resentment and desire for revenge. On some level, the Last Man knows that despite his pleasures and comforts, he is empty and miserable. With no aspiration and no meaningful goals to pursue, he has nothing he can use to justify the pain and struggle needed to overcome himself and transform himself into something better. He is stagnant in his nest of comfort, and miserable because of it. This misery does not render him inactive, on the contrary, it compels him to seek victims in the world. He cannot bear to see those who are flourishing and embodying higher values, and so he innocuously supports the complete de-individualization of every person in the name of equality. The Last Man's utopia is one in which total equality is maintained not from without by an oppressive ruling class, but from within, through the evil eye of envy and ridicule. No herdsman and one herd. Everyone wants the same thing. Everyone is the same. Whoever thinks otherwise goes voluntarily into the madhouse. Upon finishing his speech on The Last Man, the crowd cries out, Make us into this Last Man. You can have the Superman. Hearing their ridicule, the warning of the old man in the forest rings through Zarathustra's head. He had come to mankind out of love and with a gift, but they responded to him with ridicule and contempt, just as the old man had predicted. And now they look at me and laugh, Zarathustra says, and laughing, they still hate me. There is ice in their laughter. The realization dawns on Zarathustra that the mass of men are incapable of understanding the significance of his words. And so he formulates a new mission. He is not going to bring his gift and love to mankind, but to a select few individuals with the potential to rise above the herd and who, in the words of Zarathustra, follow me because they want to follow themselves, and who want to go where I want to go. With a newfound optimism and hope, Zarathustra leaves the town in search of new companions on whom he can bestow his wisdom. As he departs on his journey, Zarathustra witnesses an omen in the sky. With the sun at its midday peak, he sees an eagle soaring through the air with a snake coiled around its neck, not as its prey, but as its friend. This is a strange sight, as historically the eagle, a symbol for the highest aspirations of the spirit, has been portrayed as the enemy of the snake, a symbol for animalistic desire and evil. The union of the eagle and snake thus represents for Zarathustra the following injunction. For the full development of the self, we must not only embrace our greatest possibilities, but also lift our shadow out of its psychological depths and acknowledge our capacity for evil. As Zarathustra elaborates in one of his later speeches to his companions, It is the same with the human being as with the tree. The higher they climb into the height and light, the more strongly their roots strive earthward, downward, into the dark, the depths.